evening, brethren and sisters and, and young people. Well, we began the first of the 12 songs of the Song of Solomon in our last class, having spent a couple of weeks in preparation for that, looking at Solomon and looking at some basics of the book of the Song of Solomon. Then we began last time and we only got as far as the second verse in this very beautiful first song. The first song we have entitled, as you'll notice in those notes that we gave to you, The Chosen Bride. It's the beginning of the story of love. It's the beginning of the romance, if you like, between a boy and a girl. And we have, of course, particularly um, headed our different um, uh, songs that way so that this, this love story develops as we go through this song. The first six songs, as we've pointed out, of course dealing with the Jewish bride and then the emphasis in the second six of the songs being upon the Gentile aspect of the bride of Christ. And uh, in this first one then, there is in the first song the expression of the desire of the bride to be with her beloved. And in those two verses which we began with in our last class, the bride very clearly outlines the qualities of the groom. She gives us very clearly the outline of what it was that attracted her to him. And remember the, the exhortation that we got from that spiritually is that the desire of the bride um, and the love for the bride, for the groom, should be reflected in our attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And she speaks so highly of him and ends up that section in the third verse, was the third verse that we got to. In the third verse she ends up with this statement, Therefore do the virgins love thee. And the NIV perhaps puts the idea of that better than any other when it says, No wonder thy virgins love thee. And remember when we finished upon that note, we said that here in the introduction of the virgins in this very early portion is to remind us that the virgins and the bride are one and the same thing spiritually. The bride is the ecclesia of God. The virgins are the individuals of that bride. And so we're going to find as we go through the Song of Solomon that when we talk of the bride, we are talking of ourselves collectively as an ecclesia and much of the terminology that's used of the bride can be seen in that context. Whereas the virgins become each one of us and their love for the groom is equal to the bride. In fact, of course, in the customers we'll pick up in a moment, the, the bride's bride and her virgins were never separated. Not like they are today, they actually came to live together in the one house and so they were continually together. And they're very beautifully represented as having the same love uh, for this groom, for this beloved. And again we say that as we contemplate those principles that were found in those first uh, two verses, or verses verse 2 and 3, the first two verses of the song, that um, uh, we examine ourselves as to whether our love and our desire for our beloved is as great as that expressed by the bride here. When we parallel that with the seventh song, which is the beginning of the Gentile section, the, the, the basis is exactly the same. That Gentile section in the seventh song begins really with the bridesmaids asking the question of the bride, what is so special about your beloved? Why is he different to all others? And she answers by extolling his qualities, exactly as she does here in verses 2 and 3 here. So that, same, that song begins exactly the same way, only now it's the Gentile bride speaking. And that, of course, parallels with the call that goes to the Gentiles, particularly in the book of Acts. And when the believers of the first century came to the apostles and said, what is so special about the Lord Jesus Christ? And as the apostles outlined the Lord Jesus Christ, his life and his work, so that's expressed in the seventh song of the Song of Solomon. 
And now as we go on through this song from verse 4, we're going to have now a discourse between the bride and the bridesmaids. The groom does not speak in the first song, but there is implied very, very strongly now the qualities that are seen in the bride which attracted her to him. The brides express what she feels about the groom. That's very clear in verses 2 and 3. But implied in her discussion concerning herself, coming out of that are all the qualities that the Lord Jesus Christ sees in his bride. And so as she expresses herself, she expresses those qualities which draw us to him. And it's a reminder, brethren and sisters, that in us there is to be seen the reflection of these qualities of the bride. That we have been called because we can, brethren and sisters, reflect God's glory. We'd never be called, have been called unless we could reflect his glory. God doesn't call losers that can't do it. He calls those who can reflect his glory. And so the bride here has the qualities which, as we see spiritually, should be the qualities of the bride of Christ. Although, as we said, the emphasis is going to be here upon the Jewish bride. But there is really no difference. Because what God expects in his Jewish bride, he expects in the Gentile bride. The qualities are the same. And within the Jewish bride, there were, of course, those faithful, the, the faithful of the Old Testament, who had the very same qualities which are taken up in the second half of this beautiful book and are used to draw out the qualities of the Gentile bride. So, in verse 4, if you've got your colouring done in your chapters and if you haven't done it I suggest that it is a good idea to do it or your marking according to the notes that we gave to you or according to, to the other notes that are available there's very little difference between them um, you'll find that if you've coloured this in that we now have a discourse which goes this way and I'll just go through it very quickly and then we'll come back to it in verse 4 the, the bride now having spoken of her qualities she's overcome by talking about her beloved so overcome is she that she says, draw me. The idea is, I want to be with him now. That's what she says. Having talked about him and have her mind filled with it, it's like something, isn't it? Anything which we forget and is in the back of our mind that we like, when we draw it into our mind, we suddenly want it. It's then that we desire it. And having reflected upon her beloved, her response is, draw me. And that's her response to her husband. She wants to be with him. And the bridesmaids then answer and they say, we will run after thee. And here's that link between the bride and the bridesmaids. They're prepared to go wherever she goes. So they say, you, you go to your husband, we'll come with you. And then he, she answers again. The bride says, the king hath brought me into his chambers. So she speaks of this, the, the elevator position that she has. She's there in preparation to be his bride. Remember that we mentioned last time, and we believe it was the case, that in the daughter of Solomon, in the daughter of Pharaoh, Solomon's favourite wife undoubtedly the one whom he built a special house for that it tells us he took her into the city of David and there she remained until he had completed the building of the temple and built her a house and we suggest that that until is a very important word and parallels with this time period that the bride now finds herself in the king's chambers not married to him but prepared, preparing to be his bride Esther of course would be the classical example brought into the king's palace and kept in a separate chamber with her bridesmaids to prepare for the wedding day. So she expresses the, the privileged position she has. She says, the king has brought me into his chambers. And the bridesmaids 
rejoice with the bride over that. You know, it reminds us of the New Testament, doesn't it? That we are told to rejoice or be glad with those who rejoice and to sorrow with those that sorrow. Now here's the bride in all her joy saying, the king has brought me into his chambers. And the bridesmaids respond and say, we will be glad and rejoice in thee. So they, they join with her in her feelings and they rejoice with her as she looks at her lofty position that she's been called to. And the bridesmaids go on to say, um, we will remember thy love more than wine, the upright love thee. And then the bride then, as it were, simmers down to reality. And having seen the elevated position she's in, she suddenly reflects on the fact that she's not worthy to be in that position. And she says, I am black. But the bridesmaids who see her beautiful qualities, they answer and say, no, you're beautiful, you're comely. And then the bride answers back again and she says, No, ye daughters of Jerusalem, I'm like the black tents of Kedah. And the bridesmaids say to her, No, you're like the curtains of Solomon. And then the bride, from there, from verse 6 to verse 8, verse, verse 6 and verse 7, outlines her life for her bridesmaids. And she expresses to them why she feels that she is black. Why she sorrows is because the way in which she has been brought up. And then finally in verse 8, we have a verse which relates to a male section of the bridal party. If you have a look, say, at Purser's Notes, I think, and, and say, Brother, um, um, the other one I mentioned earlier, uh, Paul Cresswell's Notes, he'll put down virgins masculine. Now, of course, in the bridal party, and what we've tried to do is build up this as a literal story, firstly, the, the, the bridal party, the male part of the bridal party, is the best man and the groomsman. And this is singular here, so it's the best man speaking. In verse 8, the best man answers her question because she, she starts to lament in verse 7 and says, look, why, I want him. She's made the comment to begin this conversation by saying, draw me. And she really goes back to that and she says, I don't want to be found wandering around looking for him all my life. I want him here now. And the, the best man answers and says this, if thou knowest not where he is, O fairest amongst women, Go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's, shepherd's tents. So he gives her advice. And in simple spiritual terms, what he says is stay within the ecclesia. You won't find your husband outside that. You stay within the shepherd's tents and you'll find him. And that was very, very good advice as we're going to see and very good spiritual advice for those who find sometimes that it is very difficult to, to wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're back then into verse 4. The bride makes the statement, she says, um, draw me. And we made a comment last time and we'll make it again. I've just got a comment there alongside the term draw me that love is the magnet of love. Now I don't know where I got that from but it's a scriptural principle and of course you can put down alongside that John 14 verses 21 to 23 where the Lord Jesus Christ actually says that if you love me then my Father and I will love you. And there is that love is a magnet to love. Just the same as enmity is, an, is, a, is a magnet to enmity, if you like. It brings out the worst in people. But love is something which, of course, draws other people to you. And it is the love which the, the bridesmaids, uh, the virgins, see in the bride and the groom for each other that draws them as well. And so when she says there, draw me, then they, of course, want to also be drawn into that same circle. Now alongside that you could put these notes that that word draw there is very important in the history of Israel because it's the word of course that God uses for Israel as he drew her as a bride 
Hosea chapter 11 verse 4 Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3 are two verses in scripture in the context of a bride where Yahweh says I have drawn you see Hosea 11 verse 4 when Hosea is speaking of the national bride of Israel uh, God says I drew you with the bands of love that's exactly what's happening here there's a drawing that is mutual between the husband and the bride and Yahweh has drawn Israel and of course alongside that for exhortation we could put that he also draws us John 6 verse 44 um, no man can come unto the father except my father draw him, call him and that's the New Testament equivalent of the same word so you've got the principle there spiritually to ourselves like we said this is dealing particularly with the national bride of Israel but the spiritual quality, spiritual lessons will be seen for ourselves so God had drew his bride That's, that would be a key one of the many in fact I started to highlight the keys to the Jews in this first section and you run out of, out of the colours or run out of verses that you can actually words that you can colour because you find that you've got so many colours all mixed up then you can't tell between some of your other marking but almost every other word is a word that's taken straight out of God's references for his people and in this one both in Jeremiah 31 and Hosea 11 it of course is interesting that it's in the context of a bride being drawn that the word is used of Israel and so as she calls upon the, the beloved to draw her there is the echo of what God had in fact done for Israel and the bridesmaids answer that and they say we will run um, after thee and so the bridesmaids offer to go with the bride now that was customary of the time if you want to put down again a couple of quotations you can look these up at leisure Esther, Esther chapter 2 and verse 9 we were told that Esther was given the virgins who were to assist her and in chapter 4 verse 16 when she is now married she refers to her virgins still being with her so it was customary for a Jewish bride to take her virgins with her the other um, example of that would be Rebecca in uh, Genesis chapter 24 in Genesis chapter 24 remember when um, Eliezer comes to take Rebecca that she takes with her her maidens and her maidens go with her and become part of the household with Isaac in fact Genesis 24 is one of those beautiful chapters in the Old Testament to look up the qualities of the bride all the qualities of the spiritual bride are there in Rebecca but particularly in that we pick out the point there that there's another case of the, the custom that it was in Israel that the bridesmaids devoted their life to the, to the bride it's not to say that at some later stage they may have gone off and got married but until that time they devoted their time to the bride totally different to the way that we would do it today the spiritual lesson can't be overlooked and you can't miss it we are all part of the ecclesia of God and our duty is to the bride we have, as we're going to pick up a little bit later on, we have responsibilities to each other, we have, sorry, to our families. But primarily, and let's make no mistake about it, above, above our responsibilities to each other, to our family, we have a responsibility to God and his ecclesia. And that comes first, always. Because the ecclesia represents God. And so we have the same responsibility to, like the virgins, as it were, be with the bride and assist her as she uh, develops and so there were two cases and of course the other one is in um, Psalm 45 
in the basis, we believe, for this marriage, and that, of course, was the marriage of Solomon to Pharaoh's daughter. And in Psalm 45, verses 14 and 15, the king specifically speaks of the, the queen's virgins, her, her, um, uh, her aides, coming with her at that time, and they came into the household. So there would be a particular parallel with this verse because we believe that marriage is the one on which the Song of Solomon is based. And there very clearly in Psalm 45 verses 14 and 15 the bridesmaids were there with the bride and remained with her when she married the king. And so it was a very literal sense in which when they said we will run after thee that they actually did that. And there, therein lies the powerful spiritual exhortation that we must remain with the ecclesia and assist the ecclesia. And then the, the bride makes this statement as she considers her elevated position. She can't, it's almost a, a statement of unbelief. She says, the king has brought me into his chambers. She later is to express herself as a poor black girl. And she can't get over the fact, the privileged position that she's been called to. She's been brought into his chambers. Now alongside brought into his chambers, I've got the comment we picked up last time that Solomon's Egyptian bride, 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 1, because that is definitely the parallel. And when it tells us that that bride was particularly taken by Solomon and was kept in the city of David until he had completed her house and completed the temple. And so she was brought into his chambers. Now again, that word brought is straight out of the prophecies on Israel. It's the word which is used constantly, probably, probably 20 or 30 times in the books of, uh, through from uh, Exodus through to Deuteronomy, of, speaking of God bringing Israel out of Egypt. But when it says, I brought you out of Egypt, the word is always this word here that's found here. So you see the connection. This is the Jewish bride speaking. And she says, I've been brought into his chambers. And Yahweh was to say so many times, in fact you can write a few of them down if you like, Exodus 13 verse 14, Exodus 19 verse 4, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 23 would be a few of those times when that was, uh, when, when you have the idea of being brought. And in most of those occasions, remember we probably, most of you learnt this in Sunday school, that there was that parallel given, I brought you out of Egypt that I might bring you into the promised land. So to be brought out is to be brought into something. And here's the bride talking about being brought out and brought into the king's chambers. Now that, brethren and sisters, spiritually is our position. That's our privileged position. We've been brought out of the world and into the king's chambers because we've been elevated, we are told, to, to heavenly places in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been brought into God's chambers and we are, as it were, in the outer court of the tabernacle. Remember again, it's a picture that we drew last time, I think, of, of the similarity with the principles that are found under the law and the Song of Solomon. So many of them come out. And there was a need to go through the, the um, holy place that one might go into the most holy place. And the bride is here spiritually spoken of in the chambers as in the holy place. That's you and I in our time of probation waiting to be invited into the most holy place which is married with marriage with the king and able to sit with him on his throne. So the parallels are so very beautiful, beautiful of Israel in the past. It was the place, as we pointed out, of preparation for the bride which we picked up in Esther chapter 2 
Uh, in fact, in verse 3 of Esther chapter 2, it specifically says that Esther was brought into the king's chamber and there she was given these girls and she was told to prepare for 12 months to come before him. So that chamber represents, brethren and sisters, the time of probation or preparation of the bride. So it's not just an expression of privilege, but it's telling us that here was her, she saw it as her time of preparation uh, to become his bride. And that quote I gave you earlier, and you might like to put it there, is the exhortation for us, is that we are called to heavenly places in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, where Paul makes it clear that we have that wonderful privilege of being elevated into heavenly places in Christ Jesus now. That's not future that's now that we are called into those heavenly places equal here to the chambers in the terms of this song very beautiful spiritual lessons brothers and sisters that come out of first naturally Israel and then uh, also uh, applied to us spiritually um, might add that Deuteronomy 6 verse 23 that we've got there I think is the verse uh, is the one where Moses comes down from the mount on the very first occasion and um, he is um, no it's not actually no he brought us up out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers in Deuteronomy 6 but there's one there is it one of those that deals with the eagle um, is that Exodus 19 Yes, it is. Exodus, Exodus 19 and verse 4 quote I've got you there. I'll quote you. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now, what a beautiful phrase in comparison with this. Here's the bride saying, He has brought me into his chambers. Here's Yahweh speaking to his national bride and he says that I brought you out on eagles' wings that I might bring you unto myself. There's the same parallel. And is the evidence of the the privileged position because the eagle was to soar into the heavens and it was indicative of the lofty calling to which Israel was called. And Yahweh said to, to, um, um, to Israel at that time that no longer are you earthbound, I'm going to lift you into heavenly places. And that's exactly what Paul was to say in Ephesians concerning us. So the parallel is there in Israel and seen in the calling of the bride in the New Testament, the Gentile bride as well. Then the bridesmaids now respond to that. And as we said, above anything else, brothers and sisters, there are a lot of very personal exhortations in this, I think, and a lot of practical exhortations. You know, we picked up that simple one, I suppose, last time, that to the pure, all things are pure, is something that comes out so clear out of the Song of Solomon. But here again is a simple one, but we are exhorted that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. And here's the bridesmaids now saying, we will be glad and rejoice in thee. And the word glad means literally in the Hebrew to spin around like a top. And you can just imagine, you know, when you have a you know, birthday time and you give the children something and they literally spin on the spot. They're so excited about what you've given to them. Here's the bridesmaids and their reaction to what the bride has been called to. This is not the bride now, it's the bridesmaids. And so carrying that over, brethren and sisters, into our individual uh, effect on the ecclesia of God should be to enthuse excitement and joy into the ecclesia you know if we're long faced sad sacks always complaining that will reflect in the ecclesia of God but let us be like these bridesmaids who are glad and rejoicing spinning around like tops and that's infectious and the ecclesia will be caught up in that and a bit later on in fact in the 
song as she is caught up in that and the bridesmaids actually turn to her and say dance for us dance in front of us we want to see you dancing they've already danced before her they now want her to do the same thing in a later song so it's infectious and so it is in the ecclesia of God that this attitude will be infectious I've got a couple of quotations you can put down there for the exhortation to us if you like Romans 15 verses 12 to 13 12 and 13 should say 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 19 and 20 and the 1st of John 4:11, where in all those occasions we are called to rejoice in the Lord to rejoice and to rejoice with each other in the things of the truth and that's what the bridesmaids were here enacting before them if I'm going too fast with those quotes by all means put your hand up or yell or something and I'll write Romans 15 verses 12 and 13 1st of Thessalonians 2 verses 19 and 20 and the first of John 4 and verse 11 the bridesmaids there in that verse if you picked it up last time of course use that word love which is used 37 times through the Song of Solomon the word which means to boil very appropriate here because their love is an effervescent love for the bride here it's not the love of the groom for the bride we're talking about, it's the love of the bridesmaids for the bride this time. And it means to boil up, to, to actually to affect them physically uh, and mentally. And so, thy love is better than wine. The upright love thee. And there's that other word, which occurs 17 times in the Song of Solomon, which merely means affection. It's the word that's used, for instance, of, of David and, and um, Jonathan a love which was greater than that of a man for a woman but it's a word that doesn't speak of the intimacy of a married couple that's the next word particularly uh, which we find uh, it's not even in this chapter it's, it's, it's brought up later in the, in the book but this one is a more general word therefore it's quite appropriate again to be used uh, for the bridesmaids but they say at the end of that verse they say we will remember thy love more than wine the upright love thee now that phrase, the upright love thee, is uh, translated in both the Rotherham and the New English, uh, NIV, sorry, the New International Version, as how right it is to love thee. It's the combination of the Hebrew word for right or correct and love. So instead of it, it's not so much talking about the upright love him, the people who are upright love thee, the idea in the Hebrew is that it is right to love you. How right it is to love you is the way that you would translate those verses. Because you see, they are a group, those bridesmaids, the virgins, who now appreciate the qualities of the bride and the groom. But particularly the bride they're talking to now. And they say, see her there. Say, you know, it's right to love thee. The, the um, groom, they can understand why the, the bridegroom, the beloved, has a love for this bride. They can see that same thing in her. Then in verse 5 she begins to talk about herself particularly and she says, but I am black. First thing we might note is that that's the colour of the groom's hair in chapter 5 verse 11. The groom is depicted in chapter 5 and verse 11 when the bride launches into her soliloquy about the groom and how wonderful he is. The first thing she says is that his hair is black. 
And what she means by that, of course, is that he had no sign of leprosy because whiteness in the hair was a sign of leprosy under the law. He was a pure one that's presented in the fifth chapter in verse 11. But it's the same word. We'll pick it up when we come to it, but it's the same word in chapter 5 and verse 11. But there it's the colour of the groom's hair. That word black, when we trace it through scripture, has two particular points in it. Firstly, it's a colour identified with Egypt and the blackness of Egypt is proverbial and the, um, uh, we remember that Brother Jonathan in his class in Elvis Israel, I think it was in our last class was saying how the terms relating to Egypt are so specific that the darkness could be felt because it affected people and that's the darkness of Egypt and that word so black would relate to Egypt firstly it relates therefore to a past life um, but it relates in this case we believe immediately to and is an indicator that this was the daughter of Pharaoh that we're actually talking about so it would be seen literally as a reference to, to Egypt but it's also the word that's so often used in scripture as a sign of sadness or humility and you could put alongside that Job 30 verse 30 where Job says I am black and what he's talking about of course is the pressure that's come upon him come upon him by the circumstances brought upon him and particularly by the, by the, um, the conduct of his three so-called friends, miserable friends ye are. But he was black out of that. He felt he'd been battered and bruised. And so it has this idea of sadness and humility. So it's an indicator to us, brethren and sisters, first of all, of the attitude of the, the bride. She doesn't see herself as anything great. In the spiritual terms, it's not saying to Christ, I know why you chose me, because I'm the best. It's saying, I don't know why you chose me, because there's others out there that are perhaps more desirable, at least of the flesh, than what I would be. And so it's a sign of humility of the bride. How important that is, brethren and sisters, as a, as a quality in, in the bride of Christ. Humility is so very important, and without that, God is not put in the right perspective in our lives, neither is the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is her humility. That's 30-30? Um, you could perhaps also put alongside that this note that the groom sees her as fair, opposite to dark or black. Sees her as fair in chapter 1 verse 15. In the second song, the groom when speaking about the bride, she doesn't say, oh yes you're black. He says no, you're fair. And it's the absolute opposite word to black he sees her as a different colour and uh, that of course has a spiritual point that we'll come to when we, we look at the bride and we know that whiteness or clearness what it speaks of in the bride but she sees herself as black but how do the bridesmaids see her? well they answer and say no you're comely the word which the word navar n-a-v-e-h interestingly enough you could, if you want to put down the number it's 5,000 in Strong's numbers actually has the idea of suitability, to be suitable. It can be used as beautiful, but it also it comes from a base word which has the idea of something which is suitable. Now, you see what strength is here in the bridesmaids. Here are very perspective, per, here are very uh, perceptive bridesmaids. They don't just simply say, no, you're beautiful. They say you're suitable for the groom. So they see the qualities of the bride as being a reflection of the groom as being a, a, an in addition to and to complement the characteristics of the groom. So they say, no, you're not black, you're beautiful, but the base word for that is you're actually suitable. Um, that word comely is actually used um, 
five times in the Song of Solomon I can give them to you uh, here and of course chapter 1 verse 10 chapter 2 verse 14 chapter 4 verse 3 and chapter 6 verse 4 and it's one of the probably 100 words 100 words round about in Song of Solomon that are repeated five times in the book it's a book that has the number five repeated over and over again and so five occurrences of this word comely as it goes through the bride but particularly actually it's in the Jewish section that it's found but um, see it, they see it as uh, they see her as comely or suitable as an exhortation of course I've got marked alongside that compare the helpmeet of Genesis 2 verse 18 because that's what a woman was created for that she might be suitable and in fact suitable is the way that brother Thomas expresses helpmeet when brother Thomas in Elphaz Israel gives about four translations of the word helpmeet one of them is suitable that's how he sees it in simple terms of what the word helpmeet means back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 different word to what we're dealing with here but the same idea here's the bridesmaids expressing a view straight out of the law of marriage in Genesis 2 that in the bride she can, the bridesmaids can see that they're going to be a complement to the groom so they say you're very suitable and that's of course what a bride should be we should be suitable to the Lord Jesus Christ we know the qualities Christ is looking for in his bride we match those qualities that we might be suitable and a compliment to him compliment of course is another one of Brother Thomas's explanations of that phrase a compliment to him actually when you go back to those words the word help is very important because the, um, the word help actually is a military term and it really means to surround or to protect and there was the role of the bride and in fact you know that's what the bride does in this song or in the, in the Song of Solomon because several times the bridesmaids or people are caused to say what, what, what's this about your beloved and she always springs to his protection she always springs to compliment him to bring out his qualities but that's the role of the wife that she might protect her husband it's actually a military term whereas the word meet of course is the Hebrew word which simply means a reflection of to the face it's one of the words for face to the face and it means like you look at yourself in a mirror that was Eve in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 so suitable becomes a very very um, uh, appropriate word to use for that joining of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and verse 18 and here it is in verse 5 the bridesmaids recognise it and they say in this bride although she she um, in her she lowers if you like her status before them yet they recognize her qualities exhortation again for ourselves is is almost goes without saying doesn't it how do we respond when a brother or sister comes up and says you know i don't feel worthy to be a brother or sister of christ you know, there's two ways we can handle that so here you're dead right you shouldn't be a brother or sister which is very very helpful or you build them up and you start talking about their qualities and you talk, and talk about what they can do in the truth and elevate in your own mind and in their mind themselves that's what the bridesmaids did to the bride and uh, um, we also of course uh, should be prepared uh, to do that as well and so they see her as comely but she still doesn't stop there she's not the sort that puts on a modest a false modesty you know when you go and say oh I'm really a bad fellow and someone says no you're not you say, oh, no I'm not <laughs> you know it's a false modesty here's a girl who comes back with another answer again she says no you don't understand she says I'm, I am black I'm are ye daughters of Jerusalem I'm like the tents of Kedar 
Now the word keder is another Hebrew word for black. It has more the idea of swarthiness, but it's blackness or swarthy, and related, of course, to the people themselves and particularly to their tents. And so she's harping on this blackness that she sees in her. It's the word that's used of persecution. A um, couple of quotations for that. Jeremiah 8 and verse 21 when Jeremiah is speaking in the readings that were done a few weeks ago now in Jeremiah 8, when he speaks of how he feels with the pressure upon him, the word actually is this word here that's translated kedar, black or dark or swarthy. Not as a proper noun, but as a word. So that's in Jeremiah 8 verse 21. It's found in Psalm 120 and verse 5. And it's found in Psalm 36 and verse 6. I'll just quote you Psalm 120 because the context there seemed to me to be very appropriate to, um, to what we're dealing with here because it actually uses the word kedar in the context of swarthy or dark. And Psalm 120 and um, at verse 5 says, Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshach, Meshach that I dwell in the tents of kedar. And he goes on to say, My soul hath longed with him that hateth peace. And so David is lamenting his position and he makes the comment that he feels like the tents of Kedar. The very same way in which it's used here of the bride in uh, Song of Solomon chapter 1. So it's now not just talking of blackness but because of its connotations that you pick up in scripture it now of course has this idea of persecution. And she sees herself as being persecuted. Now... This, of course, was especially true of this bride because this is the Jewish bride. And not only has Israel forever been under that term persecution, but within the ecclesia, the true bride, within Israel, the true bride have ever been that position. You know, the, the, the Moses, the, the Josephs, the Davids, the Jeremiahs, those who were the true bride. The national bride, remember, we said is Hosea. This is not really the national bride. This is the spiritual bride, but natural Israel. But the national bride of Israel, without her spirituality, is Hosea. That's why Hosea doesn't promise immortality. All that God says of his national bride, the people of Israel, is, I'll elevate you to a great nation again in the earth. That's their blessing. But within that national bride, there is this spiritual class of person which as I said would make up the, those faithfuls of the Old Testament and they were always the persecuted class within Israel. There was the enmity in Israel always against the righteous class so it's very fitting that she now identifies herself as that class of person that has suffered persecution and the bridesmaids very beautifully turn this around and you can just look, just for a moment use your imagination she said I'm like the black tents of Kedar. Now what could you have as the absolute opposite to that than the bridesmaids answer and say, no, you're like the beautiful temple curtains of Solomon. And they've used an expression which is absolutely opposite to the dark black tents of Kedar. They've turned their mind to the beautiful interwoven curtains of Solomon which of course are outlined for us, a quote here somewhere, um, in... Um, 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 uh, Second Chronicles chapter three and verse fourteen. The Second Chronicles three and verse fourteen is the details of the curtains that Solomon made for the temple. Those that were interwoven with gold, silver, with gold, blue, and white and scarlet. 
and of course they had the cherubims interwoven on them as well. That's how the bridesmaids saw her. Though she saw herself as being black, yet they answer and say, no, you're like the beautiful tempered curtains of Solomon. Now, of course, Psalm 45 and verse 14 again would be a quotation to put alongside that because when the bride, when the groom speaks of his bride there, he again talks of her being in beautiful apparel and he doesn't see her as black at all. Although she was, we believe, the Egyptian bride of, of Solomon, yet when he talks about her in Psalm 45 and verse 14, it says, She shall be brought, and notice this, unto the king in raiment of needlework now that phrase needlework is straight out of Second Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 14 it's the word that's used of the needlework that was found in Solomon's um, curtains the virgins her companions that follow her shall be brought in unto thee and so very clearly the virgins are there when she's expressed when the, the, the groom expresses in Psalm 45 how beautiful he sees her he sees her in that fine needlework. Now, anybody knows anything of um, studies that I've done, I usually like to manage to get round to Malachi 3 verse 16, and we do that at this stage. Uh, Malachi 3:16 and 17 is that what that's all about. Remember, there were those who spoke one to another, and Yahweh heard it, um, and they became his jewels. It says that um, they came together. There were those that thought they spake often one to another they that thought upon my name and the word thought in, in, um, in fact we can turn it up because you might want to mark this down into your margin that the word thought there means to plait or to weave and is actually a reference to this very thing that we're talking about that the qualities of God have to be worn like a garment they've got to be woven into our life verse 16 of Malachi 3 then they that feared Yahweh spake often one to another. Interesting enough that that phrase one to another is one of the words for love in Song of Solomon and it's, it speaks of a very close love between people. And they spake often one to another and Yahweh hearkened and heard it and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared Yahweh and that thought upon his name. Now that word thought means to weave or to plait and it's actually the word that is used in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 39 translated as cunning work. Remember when they made the curtains of cunning work? That's this word thought. So it means to weave in and out. Very same principle we picked up here in the Song of Solomon chapter 1. Seen in the bride are the expressions of God manifestation because there's all the colours of God manifestation. You know the colours of the rainbow? The colours of the rainbow are the colours of the needlework under the law and they are the reflection of the divine character. So here's the bride, seen by the bridesmaids, as reflecting God's character. Beautiful point and of course again shows that the bridesmaids are very perceptive and they can draw out of, the, out of people, uh, draw out of the bride the qualities where she may not herself be able to see them. No, so was that, sorry, yeah. that in, um, about Exodus, Yes, Exodus um, 39, I think I said it was. I'll just, what is it? 39.3, Exodus 39, verse 3. You know, talking about seeing the qualities in people, I'm always reminded, you've probably heard me say this before, but reminded of 
Uh, I'm always reminded of my father, who those of you who may have known him would know him as a very quiet, very, I believe, a very humble brother. But uh, as a young fellow, particularly perhaps in my teens, I used to think that his meekness was a sign of weakness and used to forever criticise the fact that he didn't seem to have enough up and go. You know, why don't your dad get thump into these brethren that treat you like they do sort of thing. And he would say to me very often when I saw him actually, as we all do at times, um, uh, coming under pressure from brethren and I'd see him very, very concerned about that and come home and I'd say, Dad, get back in there, get stuck into them. And he would always say to me, he said, son, he said, the first thing I do when I get into pressure like this is I start to look at the qualities of that brother who's offended me. And I start to run down his qualities and he said, after a while I realise that he's got qualities I haven't got. He's doing things in the truth I don't even do. So what right have I got to come back and criticise him? And it just diffuses the whole issue. And that's the, the attitude that's seen here in the bridesmaids who are able to take the bride and although she sees herself as being persecuted, they say no. Look, there are qualities there and they're qualities which they express as the curtains of Solomon. One other point we can perhaps make on verse 5, we did miss it, but the phrase daughters of Jerusalem is of course the title of natural Israel. Um, Israel so often in the Old Testament are referred to as having Jerusalem as their mother. And in Luke 13, verse 34, remember that the Lord Jesus Christ was to say, how often I would have gathered you as a... Yeah, yeah a daughters, you daughters of Jerusalem. Uh, better get it in context. Um, as a hen would ga- gather her chicks. Um, but she would not. Uh, Luke 13, 34. O Jerusalem... Jerusalem, thou which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth her brood under her wings. So there's Jerusalem being depicted with having children. Children who were natural Israel, who in the main rejected God. They were actually the cause of the persecution of the bride. And so the daughters of Jerusalem is another indicator here that we're talking of the Jewish section of the book. The bridesmaids, it's the bride talking to the bridesmaids, but the bridesmaids are but a reflection of the bride. So any terms used of them refer to the bride as well. And they're called daughters of Jerusalem. It's also, of course, used of us, isn't it? Where, what verse would we put down that we are daughters of Jerusalem? No tries? The allegory in Galatians. Yeah, Galatians, right. The allegory in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 26, Jerusalem from above, which is mother to us all. So we are, in a sense, daughters of Jerusalem as well, spiritually speaking. And um, Galatians 4, verse 26. So daughters of Jerusalem, while it has its special reference to natural Israel, is of course, as we've seen in so many of the titles of Israel, it can be applied to, to spiritual Israel as well. Now the bride, she's not uninterrupted in verse 6 and 7, uninterrupted she talks about herself. And she's discussing this with her bridesmaids and she says look not upon me because I am black because the sun hath looked upon me Uh, my mother's children were angry with me they made me the keeper of the vineyards but mine own vineyard have I not kept and so she talks of her background and the first thing of course is an emphasis again on the word black straight out of verse 5 although the bridesmaids have told her she's not black yet she says I am 
Now that to me, brothers and sisters, would highlight this point that we're not talking of false modesty. We're talking of a girl who really knew her shortcomings. And I've got marked alongside that phrase I am black in verse 6, a recognition of her sin. That although the bridesmaids could talk of all her qualities, yet she still comes back and says, but I am black. And no matter, brothers and sisters, what qualities we have, what qualities there are developed in the truth, we are all black, aren't we? We will never get into the kingdom by works. We'll never receive life because of our qualities. We are all black. And so although the bridesmaids have gone to great detail to try and try and convince her of her qualities, she still sees it very realistically that she is a sinner. And we must all, of course, see ourselves in that position. No false modesty here. And then she goes on, she says, I know that I'm black because the sun hath looked upon me. And the word looked upon there literally in the Hebrew means to be tanned. And it comes from, from an idea that the sun's rays pierce the skin and burn it. So it has the idea of tanning. Now what this is, of course is we're dealing with spiritual principles here. And here's a bride who recognises that God has been in her life. What does the sun represent but God? And the sun piercing, its rays piercing us, brethren and sisters, is that very simple principle we teach our youngest children. God sees everything we do. He's aware of everything we do, like the sun piercing into the skin. And circumstances will be brought upon us as he sees fit. And so here's the, the bride recognising her, her, um, her life. And I've got there, just as a summing up of that phrase, that it's a recognition of providence in her life that things have come upon her which she sees as coming from the sun. The sun has come, burnt her skin or, or tanned her skin. So it's the work of providence. It's the work of God in our life and she's recognising that. And then she goes on to speak of her own personal life and she says, my mother's children were angry with me. The word angry there, by the way, means to burn. It's, it's a very strong word for angry. Um, you know, uh, you can be angry and you can be ferocious. Well, this is the word ferocious. It re really means to burn with anger. It's the word used of Cain in Genesis 4 and verse 5 when, when uh, the anger um, uh, was kindled in Cain because of Abel's acceptance and he killed his brother. It's the same word used here. So, and my brother's children were angry with me. Now, of course, the groom would be able to appreciate this. This is the bride speaking. But the groom, typically, or rather spiritually, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And who can identify more with that principle than the Lord Jesus Christ? His own children, his own brothers and sisters killed him. His own, his, the, the Jews took him and nailed him to a cross. The Romans drove the nails in, true enough, but it was on behalf of the Jewish people who put him there. My mother's children were angry with me. And you can't get much more angry than that. They put him to death. So here's a identification between the two of them that the groom is able to appreciate this bride's position because he's been through it. Reminds us, doesn't it, that we have in heaven a great high priest who has been tempted in all points like as we are. That he himself has suffered like we suffer. Now there's an identification now between the bride and between the beloved because he also... Um, had angry children angry family who were angry against him so alongside that you could write I've written there identification with Christ's own experience Isaiah 53 I mean where else could you go but Isaiah 53 where it deals with the pressure of the anger 
of, of his children against him. And alongside that you could put down, compare men like Moses, Joseph, Jeremiah, all who experienced their brother's anger upon them. Well, they were the true bride. And those, who, those brothers were natural Israel, who are not part really of this bride. This is a spiritual bride. Although she's Jewish, it's spiritual bride, acceptable. And so there is this um, identification again with the righteous within Israel. My mother's children were angry with me. And what did they do? They made me the keeper of the vineyards but mine own vineyard have I not kept. Again, I say that it never ceases to amaze me just the practical exhortations that come out of Son of Solomon and the way it hits things right, the nail right on the head. You know, that, brethren and sisters, is the perennial complaint of any true saint of God. If we are a true son or daughter of God, that will be our complaint. Because what that's saying in spiritual terms is that because of my responsibilities to the ecclesia, which is the vineyard, I can't spend the time I'd like to spend on my vineyard, which is my own family. And isn't that the story of every one of us? If we know our responsibilities, we get a call from the ecclesia for help, we have to go. And when doing so, we feel we, we could have done more for our own family. But we have a responsibility to God's vineyard. And great men of scripture, of course, are the evidence of that. Men like we mentioned, Moses and so forth, that come over into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he says, above everything else was the care of the ecclesia of God. We've all got that responsibility, brethren and sisters. As much as we'd like to spend more time in our own vineyard, we have a responsibility to the large vineyard of God. And what Song of Solomon tells us is that that circumstance will remain until Christ comes. And in the 8th chapter of this book, in verse 12, right at the end, in the last song, in the very second or third last verse of this, this book, the bride is able finally to say to Solomon, you had a vineyard, I've got a vineyard. They're now joined together. They're one and the same. But until then, brothers and sisters, until Christ comes, we have a responsibility to two vineyards. Yahweh's big vineyard and our own little vineyard. Now, I've got a couple of verses down here just because I do think it needs to be emphasised our responsibility to the ecclesia. Not that we neglect our family, brethren and sisters, we are no means suggesting that. But we cannot get past the point that spiritually speaking, God and his ecclesia comes first. And our responsibilities are there. What we have to learn, brethren and sisters, is to bring our families into, to, um, um, what's the word? into conformity with that. So that the family and our, our, the ecclesia become one family, as it were. We do everything in the ecclesia together. And therefore we're looking after those two vineyards and they get, in a sense, intermingled. But there'll always be those occasions where our responsibilities to the large ecclesia um, cause our small vineyard to suffer sometimes. But that's to be expected in the truth, in the work of the truth. Now I've got a couple of quotes here. We have our obligation to the ecclesia. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 to 34 now why I've chosen that verse is this, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 32 to 34, because we can't escape the fact that what Paul says in his day to young men and young women is don't marry. I suggest that it's better not to marry, because when you marry it will draw you away from work toward God and his ecclesia. The woman or man, he says, who is married will care more for his family than for God. See, he puts his finger on the problem. 
Now he's not saying, and he doesn't say we shouldn't marry, but he says his preference is that you don't, because there will be a pulling between the two, and what will suffer is God and his ecclesia. That's true in all of our cases, isn't it? It is really honestly true if we look at our lives. It's God that suffers while we think we have a responsibility to our family. Now Paul puts his finger on that in the first of Corinthians chapter 7. Can, um, can I ask a question? Yes, Al. Isn't the family also the ecclesia then? Hmm. So I'm saying you've got to bring the two as well as the ecclesia as a group here. Yeah. But aren't, aren't our families like your your individual families? Yeah. Isn't that an ecclesia? Yes, it is. But at where it, where we show that it isn't is when the ecclesia is doing something and we're not there. And we say sometimes, well, my responsibility is to my family. But our responsibility is if the ecclesia is doing something to have our family there, and then you've got the two combined. Um, but what often happens, and I suppose it. You know, it's, it's one of those anomalies in life. Arranging brethren, those who have the overseering of the ecclesia, are called upon to do things in the ecclesia all the time. And very often, the, 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 those who criticise them the loudest and say they should be home with their family are the ones who are saying, hey, why don't the AB do this? Why don't the AB do that? On the one hand, they're saying the AB should do this and that. And on the other hand, they're criticising them because they're never home with their family. And very often the ecclesia is our worst enemy because there are issues that we should handle ourselves and we give to others to do. And uh, But yes, you're right, Alan, there's got to be, and as I said that, there's got to be an intermingling of these two. They've got to complement each other so that our, our, the ecclesia is extended into our house and likewise their house is extended into the ecclesia and we see it as a large family responsibility. But there will always be this pulling between the two because some will demand of us a little more than the other. And so she laments that. The other quotation I've got there is the Second Corinthians 11 and verse 28 where, where um, the Apostle Paul again gives us, of course, is to go on and say that above all the other responsibilities he had, the greatest was in the ecclesia of God. And he makes it very clear where his priorities were. The other one that always impresses me, and I'll put it down there, is the parable of the lost coin, Luke 15 verses 8 to 9. We all, brethren and sisters, are the woman of the parable. We all have a responsibility to find the lost coin. But you see, while we're looking for the lost coin, we are, in effect, we've got to, in some respects, neglect the rest of the house. The one coin was one of, we believe, 12 coins that were around the, the necklace of a bride when she was married, traditionally, in Israel. And she'd lost one. Beautiful connection with Song of Solomon, I suppose, because it's, it's got this principle of the bride in it. And she's dropped one of the parts of that, the, one of the coins that made up that necklace. And, but she's got to put the others down, the other, uh, the other 11 down, to look for the one. In the earlier parable, it says that one sheep was lost and the shepherd left the 99 on the mountains and went looking for the one sheep. Now, that implies that there was an emphasis in that area away from that area. He was going from one vineyard to another. Both he had a responsibility in, but sometimes circumstances call for us to do more. Now what this bride is really saying here, historically, is this, that the ones who represent the bride are the great men like Moses, Joseph, Jeremiah, who would have loved to have spent more time with their families, who would have loved to have done that, but they couldn't, because the blimmin' ecclesia wouldn't let them do it. Israel kept grumbling and carrying on and Moses had to look after them. And he would have loved to have relaxed back and said, well, I've got things to do at home. But he had an ecclesia to look after. And so the bride here, remember, depicts those faithful in Israel. Whoever had that problem, that because of Israel's pressure on them, 
they couldn't do the things they would have loved to have done themselves. Now the other thing that we've put on that list though to balance it out, I put one, we have an obligation to Ecclesia, is two, we have an obligation to our family. And we've put down there, you can add many quotes, but I've just put Psalm 127, 128, because they were the two Psalms that were written by Solomon regarding family life. And there very clearly is the, is the, um, uh, the indication of the obligation that we have to our family, to our children and to our wives and to our husbands that they're depicted there, if you remember, as the, the wife being the vine on the innermost part of the house. Beautiful picture, because when you walked into the house, what do you see? We walk in here, I mean, honestly, when you walk into any house, uh, we walk into this one, we see Sharon. Um, not so much Ben, um, because her influence is in the place. Um, and that's the picture that's presented. The house was filled with a vine, because that was the wife, and her influence is seen first. And then there at the table are the little olive shoots and the large olive tree, which was the father and the children. And that's the picture of Psalm 127, 28. Beautiful psalm that deals with our responsibilities. We have to see them as responsibilities, both of them. Um, all too often, one draws away from the other. And then, in verse 7, she now gets quite frustrated, the bride. And she says, Tell me, having now reflected, you put it together, she's reflected on the greatness of her beloved, how much she loves him. Now she's cast her mind down and thought, what a miserable life she's lived. What do you look at next? For goodness sake, I want my husband. I want to be married. I want to be out of that circumstance. So she says, tell me. She just puts it out to anybody, to a whole bridal party. She says, look, one of you, tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turns aside by the flocks of thy companions? So she says, I don't want to be left in this position forever. Where are you? She's looking for him. Now, the phrase, whom my soul loveth, again, is used five times in the Song of Solomon. And it's only used in the Jewish section. Now, I find that important because it's the first commandment, isn't it? It's the first commandment of the law of Moses Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul and with all thy mind. And so loving with the soul is used five times and as we said, in the Jewish section only. So that it has an inference back, if you like, to the law and to Israel in particular. Whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. So she sees him as a shepherd and she says, I want to be with you where you're feeding your sheep. Your sheep, excuse me. And she says, why? She says, because I don't want to be one as one that turns aside. Now in the margin, you'll notice it says as one veiled. And when you look up Strong's and then perhaps go to Twat, which will, a uh, 20th century uh, theological word book of the Old Testament, uh, you'll find it's explained fairly well for you that the word can be used two distinctly different ways, it seems. The Hebrew word can either refer to being covered or veiled, or it can have the idea of wandering, of being lost and wandering around aimlessly. Both actually would fit the case here. And in fact, different translations have picked it up. So that in regard to veiled, the New World Translation says, why should I be wrapped in mourning? Why should I be wrapped in mourning? You see, she wants to be with her beloved. And she's just talked about how black she is. She said, why should I stay in this position? Whereas the Jerusalem Bible translates it as why should I wander like a vagabond? So translations of pick whichever one suits them. But both are suitable. 
You don't have to argue the point, they're both suitable. She sees herself as wrapped in mourning, she wants to be with her beloved, or she sees herself as wandering around like a vagabond, looking for him. And so she says that where, where, um, uh, where, she says, is, um, are you? And she says, by the flocks of thy companions. And that, of course, is an indication that she was in the right place anyway because she was with his companions. Now, I've got a note alongside thy companions, all that love him. We've got bridal party and everything mentioned in this book, but the, the associates here of the groom must be those who love him. And Psalm 119, verses 59 and verse, to verse 63, are all those that, that, that love Yahweh, are his companions. And... In the New Testament, John 15:15, 15, 15, Ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. So, if you like, taking the picture even broader, um, which one? Psalm 119, verses 59 to 63, and John 15, verse 15. Both which are speaking of friendship, of those who are drawn to God. Um, so, as I said, what we've got to try and do with this song more than anything else is to see it as a literal picture and we've got a bride, we've got a groom we've got bridesmaids, we've got a best man but let's remember there's other people involved too there's guests that will come to the wedding and they would really be the companions here they're those who are, who are um, uh, the associates and uh, she says I'm amongst them but I'd rather be, I'm with his friends but I'd rather be with him isn't that logical? That's a logical request from this bride I mean his friends are one thing but they're not him are they? as much as they're friends they're not as good as having the real thing as having him there. So she at least acknowledges she's with, her, with his companions but she wants to be with him. And finally the answer comes back the very good and beautiful spiritual advice of the best man in verse 8. If you don't know where he is, she says to him, then go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. In very simple terms, all he says to her is, look, if you want to find your husband, your beloved, if you're frightened you're going to lose him, stay in the ecclesia. Stay hard by the shepherds who are feeding their sheep. Follow in their footsteps and you'll come to know Christ. Now, that's the advice, of course, that you'd always give, isn't it? If someone came to you, you're going to knock on the door tomorrow by some brother or sister who said, look, I really feel I'm losing my way. I, I thought Christ was coming back in 1990 and here we are in 1994 I don't know whether I can go much further. What advice are you going to give? You're going to say, well, you'll find him if you go out in the world? No, you say, look, whatever you do, stay within the ecclesia of God. Stay by the shepherd's tents. It's there that you'll get fed. If you go out, you'll lose him. But stay within the shepherd, the area of the shepherd's tents. Now that word fairest in verse 8 is used 12 times in the Jewish section. Beautiful. Another clue, of course, to this being the Jewish section. And it is in fact the word used of Israel. When God speaks of Israel, very often in the Old Testament, for example, Ezekiel 16, verses 14 and 15, and I'll give you that quote, because I'll read it to you, because the context, I, in all these cases, might I say, brothers and sisters, that there are many other quotes I could have used. I've tried to pick ones that are suitable to the occasion because of the context. Now, of all the many times in the Old Testament that Yahweh speaks of Israel as being beautiful, or fair, look at the context in Ezekiel chapter 16 when he's talking to his spiritual bride, verses 14 and 15. And thy renown went forth amongst the heathen for thy beauty, there's our word, because you were comely, God speaking to Israel. For it was perfect through my comeliness 
which I had put upon thee, saith Yahweh. A beautiful phrase. God says, the nations admired your beauty because I put the beauty there. Because they saw in Israel a reflection of God. Now if anyone sees us as beautiful, brethren and sisters, it's because Christ has put that beauty upon us. Our comeliness comes not from ourselves, but from God and his Son. And then in verse 15 it goes on and says, But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, there's our word again, and played the harlot because of thy renown, and pouredest out uh, thy fornications on every one that passed by. And isn't that so suitable again to Song of Solomon? Because there's a bride who was vain and puffed up, saw her beauty and said, Aren't I beautiful? Here's a bride who the bridesmaids and the grooms say you're beautiful, but she says, No, I'm not really. Now there's the true and the right attitude contrasted with Israel and the wrong attitude in Ezekiel 16. So a very beautiful quote to put alongside that where the word fear is used or that same Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament. It's the word, that word fear, it's the word used of Christ in Psalm 45 verse 2 and his bride in verse 11. The verse starts off by speaking of him being so comely, the groom being one who is beautiful. And the groom then turns his attention to the bride and says she is beautiful in verse 11. So it's used in the Psalm 45 which is so closely related to this book. Verse 2 used of the groom or Christ. Verse 11 used of his bride. Same word. So it's a recognition of that quality by each of them. Um, And he goes on to say feed thy tents beside the shepherd's tents. Now I've got a note there, we're coming to a conclusion. I've got a note there that this is also the advice of the wise virgins really in Matthew 26 verse 9. You know the parable of the wise virgins and you've probably often wondered and some have seen it totally wrong when the bridesmaids said to the five foolish go to them that sell and buy oil for yourself. And some have seen that and thought you know, that's surely a, a very conceited and a wrong approach to things if someone comes and asks for oil. But you see, what you've got in Matthew 25 is they're standing before the judgment seat. The bridegroom has come. When we get to Sinai, brethren and sisters, and someone comes up to you and says, I don't think I'm ready for the judgment seat, I'm going to boil. What are you going to say? All you can say is go back to those who gave me the oil. I can't give you any of mine. That's what they said. I can't give you any because I only got enough for myself. We're going to have life by grace. I'm not going to march before Christ and say, look, I've got a full vessel of oil, you have to give me immortality. That full vessel of oil is not enough to get immortality because you can't buy it. And the wise acknowledge that and they say, we haven't got enough for us, let alone for you. But if you want that, go back to those that sell it. Now, in the ecclesia, those that sell it, of course, are the shepherds of this verse. And although it's it's an answer given by the bridesmaids, which is, is silly in a sense because... It's not true. There's no way they could buy it. But by the same token, you know, if you look at it literally and someone came up and said, I'm not ready, what are you going to say? Well, sorry, mate, it's too late. So, well, look, the only advice I can give you, I got my oil from the ecclesia of God and from those who taught me God's word. You go back and try the same. But, of course, it was too late. They couldn't get it then. But really, you see, in that context, the bridesmaids, wise bridesmaids there, are acknowledging their humility. They haven't got enough oil for both of them. And they're giving the only good advice they can give that oil has always come from people who give it to you. And here it's food of the shepherds. It's the same principle. So I see a parallel and I put it's the advice of the wise virgins. Go and feed thy kids beside the shepherds' tents. Um, now one of just last point on that verse is the context is the best man, as I said. 
It's part of the bridal party, but it's in the masculine, singular. So it's got to be, I believe, the best man. Now, in the Jewish order of things, the best man was a very special person. And you can write these quotes down. Eliezer was the best man in Genesis chapter 24. When he went on behalf of Abraham to choose a wife for Isaac, he went as best man. And he played that role. John the Baptist, in John chapter 3 and verse 29, was the best man. He says that he that has the bride is the bridegroom, but he that cometh before him and rejoiceth uh, is the friend of the groom. And that was the word for the best man at a wedding. And the last one is the Apostle Paul in the Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 7 and 28. You'll find, in fact, it answers the question, a query really, because I don't know whether you've ever realised when you read Second Corinthians 11, Paul says, I have espoused you unto one husband. How can he espouse us to anybody? I mean, a husband espoused my wife to me. Nobody did it for me. But under the Jewish order of things, the best man literally did that. And under the Jewish custom, the best man went out on behalf of his friend and invited the bride. Because he couldn't have any physical contact, he would go then and, and bring messages between them and looked after them and became, as it were, a mediator between the groom and the bride. And uh, so there's a lot of powerful spiritual lessons. We can't deal with it because it's outside really the scope of Song of Solomon. But if you've looked at it, it gives another dimension to this verse because in what the best man did here is the role of the best man to give good advice to the bride. And he was the one who had to take messages back literally between the husband and the bride just as the Apostle Paul did on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the examples in Scripture. Eliezer, John and uh, Paul are three examples of best men who went and invited a bride and then looked after her and prepared her um, for her wedding day along with the bridesmaids. So, believe it or not, we'll come to the end of the first song. Done pretty well, seeing we only did two verses last time. Um, but a lot of those principles, as you'll notice, we've already picked up, picked up, which we won't have to spend so much time on in the rest of the book because many of these words are used many, many times through the Song of Solomon so we won't have to labour them when we come to them and of course principles and introductions of characters and so forth we've already done that here in the first song so God willing then when we come together next time we'll move on to the second song which obviously is the next stage in the process we're going to see the groom now expressing the beauty of the bride we've heard the bride's expressions of beauty now the groom is going to tell us all about his bride and what he sees in her which is absolutely beautiful so we'll consider that when we come together in our next class.